You are listening to the Happier at Work podcast, and I'm your host, Aoife O'Brien. This is the podcast for HR and business leaders. We talk about things like leadership, well-being at work, diversity and inclusion, and the future of work. Welcome to the Happier at Work podcast, episode number 48, where I speak with Zoe Routh all about leadership and self-awareness and we cover quite a few different areas specifically around awareness of triggers, the importance of feedback when it comes to awareness and also the practice of self-reflection. So throughout the podcast there are quite a lot of um, interesting prompts that you might want to use in your own practice whether that's journaling or taking time out to reflect. Zoe Routh is a leadership expert specializing in the people stuff. So she shows leaders and teams struggling with office politics and silos how to work better together. Enjoy today's episode and thank you for tuning in. Welcome Zoe to the Happier at Work podcast. I'm absolutely delighted to have you as our guest today. Would you like to introduce yourself to listeners? Thanks, Eva. What a great pleasure it is to be here on the other side of the planet. Um, Yeah, okay, me? Sure. I started my career probably face down in the mud with a canoe on my head, (laughs) which doesn't sound like an auspicious start to a career, but I think that's sort of where the seeds of awareness came in terms of what I would be passionate about throughout my life. And so I was on a canoe trip. I was 15 or 16, and it was a three-week canoe trip in northern Canada, And we were doing a portage and I slipped and fell and it was rainy and muddy and it was horrible. And I lay stuck underneath this canoe, miserable with the world. And then I realized no one was coming back for me anytime soon. And the only way out of this was to gird myself and gather myself and push myself up out of that experience. And so I did. I pushed myself up and managed to wrestle with a few swear words (laughs) upright again (laughs) and got going. And I think throughout that portage, um, what came to me was a couple of things. One, I have a lot more inner resourcefulness than I give myself credit for. Mm -hmm. And it was just a pivot of the mind that helped me to see something different. And then also the joy of spending time with the other people on the trip. And those two things, I guess there's a a few things. Those two things, you know, that self-awareness piece, that self-determination piece, the joy of spending time with others and being in beautiful settings started my lifelong passion for being with people and learning about people and myself. Um, So that was like the kernel, the seed of what started. And that led me to doing works with groups in beautiful settings around the world for the last 30 plus years or so. (laughs) It gets a bit scary when you can count multiple decades like that. I know, I know what you mean. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's brilliant. But I'm, I'm really fascinated by this self-awareness piece. I think I, you know, I see that as um, really the, you know, the epitome of what good leadership is. Um, but most people think that they're way more self-aware than they are. I'm sure I am included in that as well. But people tend to think that they have this level of self-awareness, but they don't necessarily. I'd love to dive into that kind of aspect of leadership um, a little bit more and and get your perspective on it. I think that's a really fascinating um, thought, isn't it? We're more, we we think we're more self-aware than we really are. And I think in thinking that it's the rise of hubris or of arrogance and, um, I think that you're riding for a fall when you think that you know yourself that well. Um, And it's one of the interesting things when it comes to traps of power, how powerful this this, uh, attraction to hubris is. And I've been reading lots around this. And I think this is really important for self-awareness, especially in leadership, is that when we gain power, we're given it by the people that we serve, that people who become our followers because in service to them, they say, Hey, you're looking after us. Sure. We'll give you authority. We'll give you positional status. We'll give you the right to do stuff on our behalf, which is an incredible privilege. And what happens in our brains is that we get this turbo charge of satisfaction uh, from dopamine. This is all from the work of a Dashner Keltner in his book, the power paradox um, or the paradox of power, I think is the actual title. It's a fantastic book. 
And it's fascinating to read about this. So what happens in, we have this little switch and the hubris switch is that. So that as soon as we get this exhilarating surge of satisfaction from being in charge, this rise to power in leadership roles, we take our perspective off the people that we're serving and turn it towards ourselves and wanting to maintain that sense of satisfaction, energizing nature of, of being in, in charge. And all of a sudden we become a little bit more self-obsessed, a little bit more full of ourselves. Um, and we lose the capacities that gave us power in the first place, namely empathy and compassion and service. And we become a little bit uh, up ourselves, arrogant. <laughs> uh, we become a little bit more controlling and wanting to hang on to our power. And apparently, according to Keltner, we become more impulsive too. And so in his research, he found that lots of people who were uh, powerful in status were also impulsive in areas like eating or inappropriate sexual flirting or inappropriate sexual relationships, that kind of stuff, because it all kind of triggers that immediate self-satisfaction um, button, if you like, within mm. us. Um, so that's how lack of self-awareness can cause us to get derailed as leaders, for sure. Um, and I think if we hang on to the idea that we know nothing, and Aristotle, along with Voltaire, had said something similar to that effect. I think Voltaire said, if I've learned anything, it's that I know nothing. Um, <laughs> yeah. And I think that's a, isn't that fabulous? And I think it's a useful frame to remember is that as much as we know, there's still more to know. And we are much like an onion. There's always layers and layers and layers. Absolutely. Um, and the more so you know, the more you know, the, the more you know, you don't know. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, I, th I think at the age of 26, I thought I knew everything. I had the <laughs> rise of arrogance, you know, and I had an opinion about everything. And it was only when I worked out later through some really sobering <laughs> experiences and interactions with others that maybe I haven't got it all figured out. And maybe <laughs> yeah. there is actually more to learn. Yeah. And maybe my opinion isn't the only opinion. Yeah, yeah. It, no, it's it's super interesting. And uh, I suppose on the one hand, I'm highly aware of people who reach that level of power and status and it kind of goes to their head to a degree. Um, on the other hand, I, I'd like to think that that's not everyone. And so, you know, you were talking about this impulsive nature is, and, and it reminds me of that, um, the, the marshmallow test, you know, where they, they tested children and said, I'll give you this one marshmallow or sort of donut. I think they use different things in, in different scenarios, but I'll give you this one marshmallow. But if you wait for 20 minutes, you'll get two, you know, and it's mm -hmm. about this um, resisting the urge and um, moving away from instant gratification. And those people who require instant gratification by eating the, the marshmallow immediately rather than waiting the 20 minutes, they are, I guess, impulsive. And maybe, and I wonder, are these the kind of people who experience that um, sense of power going to their head. I don't know if you can draw a direct correlation from kids in front of marshmallows or donuts and <laughs> yeah. whether or not they're going to be effective leaders. <laughs> and at the same time, I think what's useful in that experiment is uh, just highlighting how powerful the hard wiring is in our brain for that kind of impulsive behavior, because mm -hmm. we are hardwired for survival. And when we come across, let's say it's in the food world, uh, things that are sweet, salty, fatty, those in, in when we were cave people were really essential nutrients. They were quick hits of, of energy. And so if we came across a supply that was that, we would just devour it as much as possible uh, because it would help for our immediate survival. Now that's fine if you're hiding out in a cave. It is not so fine if you're sitting in front of the TV and you've got your Doritos and a nice fatty dip and a chocolate <laughs> and a box of chocolates and you just go, mm. rah, rah, rah. but I, I saw this fantastic video, which kind of highlighted how much it just takes over the brain. It was this granny and she was teaching her grandson how to, to cook cookies. And he must've been, he was a toddler, two or three. And so they're mixing everything up and he's being helpful. <laughs> And then when the batter's mixed, you know how lovely it is to lick the oh, beaters yeah. <laughs> when you're making the batter. And so he gets in there with his hand and he just scoops up the batter and smears it onto his tongue and into his mouth. And then he just keeps grabbing at it. <laughs> like 
there's no control happening there. And the granny has to seize his arms and rip the stuff away from him. And it happened when he, when they put the butter in, when they put the sugar in, it was just like this sort of, it was like the screen came over this kid's face and he just could not help himself. Yeah. And I think um, that is impulse control. We learn as much as we can to try and uh, damp or dampen down. And yet it's still there within us. Like there's a primal trigger and that's why we have to like lock those naughty foods away out of <laughs> yeah. our reach because it will take over our conscious brain. Mm. Um, so coming back to your point though, is if we can learn delayed gratification, are we better set up to be less arrogant? Absolutely. I think we definitely have to learn that discipline of delayed gratification and, and mastering ourselves. Those impulses is got to be critical and developing tuning into when we feel, um, primed for that or attuned to that is definitely one of the exercises uh, that we need to, to to practice all the time. You know, what's happening inside of me? Why do I feel this way? What am I drawn to? What do I crave right now? Uh, what am I noticing as I reach into the fridge to to grab that piece of chocolate cake? You know, what's <laughs> going on in the dialogue of my head? Like yeah. what is actually controlling me right now? Yeah. And how can I do this better? So yeah. there's, there's lots that we can, we can learn from that situation. Yeah. And there's plenty that we need to work on. That's for sure. And the first step is that awareness piece and maybe a reflection on, like you say, asking yourself the questions, like, what is it that's coming up for me right now? And what's triggering this reaction in me? And really just being aware of that. Being aware of your triggers is absolutely so important from a self-awareness piece. And we all have triggers, no matter how wise and old we get. Those aren't necessarily correlated, by the way. Just because we get old doesn't mean we get wise. <laughs> um, we have to work on that piece. Not the getting old part, the getting wise part. Yeah. Um, but we, have, we, we always have triggers. And I think one of the things I talk about in, actually, I think it's pretty much all of my books, is the idea that we can have these triggers and not be driven by them. I like to think of our emotions, our impulses as something that we can put in the passenger seat instead of allowing to be behind the driver's seat. And we do that by just observing them as opposed to reacting to them or reacting with them. So I like to every day check in like, okay, what's happening with me today? What's, how am I feeling today? What's my mood? What's my general conversation in my own head? And treat it as an object of observation, mm. as opposed to the default lens through which I'm experiencing the world. Yeah. And that shift in perspective, that ability to observe self as, as, as if self was a subject, um, is an advanced emotional intelligence skill that takes practice. Because most people just, as we're growing up, we just, we just are immersed in this narrative and this, this lens that we see ourselves in the world. And we assume that that's the truth and we have no control over it. As soon as we realize we can change that and move around, move it around and park it to the side, that gives us a whole heap more control over our choices and our interactions and our relationships. Mm. So if I'm kind of reading, um, or to put, I suppose, to put my own spin on it, it's, it's this observation versus judgment or perception. So it's as an observation and trying to be a, as objective as possible and looking at yourself from the outside versus looking at things through the lens that you've, that, that you've um, developed through experiences that you've had uh, throughout your life and almost treating it as a type of experiment. So you can take this opportunity to take a step back and look at things objectively and what would you what might you do differently if this is not the truth as you perceive it to be yeah i think that ability to observe and suspend judgment <laughs> is one of the trickier parts because we're always assigning judgment it's what our brain does mm. it looks at something and assesses the database of our experiences to see if it's safe or unsafe worthy or not worthy because our brain is an associative thing. So we want to categorize things that we experience, whether that's people or situations or ideas. And the ability to go, well, that's a new experience or that's a new feeling. Observe it, observe the detail of it and just park the, what does this mean aspect of it to the side is really, really important. It's how, it's how we, we can help suspend bias or, or um, 
deflect bias. I think we're always going to be having biases and mm. the more we are aware of how we are categorizing things, which essentially is the mechanism of bias. You know, yeah. we see this thing, it gets associated with all this database of information that we've had from television and life experience. And we determine whether that's good or bad. And that happens instantaneously. So anything we can do to slow down the instantaneous judgment response is mm. really, really helpful. Yeah. Um, and that, that oh, it takes a lot of focus to do that. And that's why meditation and mindfulness are such useful skills because it, pr- it helps us hone the ability to focus and to be aware. And those two things will help us be able to pay attention to our thinking processes and our judgment processes and our awareness processes. Yeah. Yeah. And so would that be maybe a first step towards people becoming self-aware? So let's let's assume that someone is uh, has a, a, a level of self-awareness and let's assume that they think they're more self-aware than what they actually are. Is it a case of like, how do I become more self-aware? You know, what I, I, it's, it's kind of almost a chicken and egg, isn't it? Like, do I need to be self-aware in order to become more self-aware or aware of the fact that I'm not self-aware? I feel like I'm, I'm talking right in riddles now at the yeah. moment. I actually think that the first one of the ways to become more self-aware is actually not through self-observation. It's through observation from others. Okay. And yeah, so yeah. this is where feedback becomes incredibly important and useful for us. And it's because somebody else's point of view is another perspective. And that helps the act of receiving feedback helps us become aware that not everybody sees the world the same way that we do. Mm. And I look to that cataclysmic event in my mid twenties, where I realized that very same fact, you know, the way that I see things is not the way that others see things. And it can be a rude shock to the system. Um, often we get it in first-time managers um, where they're frustrated with the people that they're leading because they just don't operate the same way that they do. And it's like, why don't they get this? Why don't they just <laughs> do the job the way that I would do? And they're yeah. like, people. And then it's like, because they're different to you and mm. they have different preferences and they have different understandings and different abilities. And that that first piece of awareness that people operate differently is is a massive breakthrough and feedback from other people is such a gift. And it's, it's so weird. Maybe it's not weird. It's, it's frustrating that we find it so difficult to give each other feedback and to receive feedback. And it's, it's kind of, um, it's one of the most difficult things that people learn how to do and to experience because we can perceive feedback as a threat. Also, Mm. often people receive it as a criticism, like I'm not living up to expectations or I'm disappointing others or I'm wrong, which are just a filter for judgment filter about the experience. So it comes back again to this humility point. If we realize that there's more to learn all the time, then we start to start, we start to seek feedback uh, because it helps expands our perspective. It starts to expand our awareness and it allows us to be more sensitive and more sensible to what's going on around us. And that makes for better leadership and it makes for better friendships and makes for better relationships in general, when we can be aware of others and the differences that are around us, which are equally as valuable as our own. Um, That's one of the other pieces of self-awareness. So coming back to your question, you know, how do we become more self-aware? I think feedback from others is, is absolutely the first step that is critical here. And then the second piece, the second skill to develop is that self-reflection skill, Mm. and which is the ability to review what happened during the day. And it doesn't have to be a huge extensive thing, though. The more you do this, the more self-aware you become. It could be a journal activity where you go, what happened today? What was I thinking? What contributed to that? What were the emotional responses? What were the effect on others? Uh, what did I learn from this? What could I have done better? That kind of journaling review is really helpful. And even if you're not a journaler, just a sitting with a cup of tea and thinking about the day um, in in review is really useful that way too. So we start to turn, turn our um, observation skills to the story and narrative of our experience. And so, yeah, we start to study ourselves, which is really, really important. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And it's, I, I agree what you said about feedback. It often is perceived as this threat and it's this, oh no, someone has some feedback for me. <laughs> and, you know, and 
the, the thought springs to mind about going into some sort of performance evaluation, you know, whether it's an annual review or a quarterly review and the expectation and the dread that people feel, no matter what level you are in a business, I think that sense of dread, um, you know, and, and the person on probably the, the giving end of the feedback doesn't feel that sense or they might feel a bit awkward if they do have some constructive feedback to deliver. But um yeah, it's generally, in my experience, not not a pleasant situation to be in, or not a not a not an easy conversation to have. Um, any thoughts on how best to deliver feedback? Oh yeah, I ran a whole masterclass on this, <laughs> um, and you're absolutely right. There there is a lot of nerves around delivering and receiving feedback. And it depends on what stage of leadership maturity we're at as to how we embrace it or not. Um, I think what makes it difficult is people, in terms of delivering it in the first place, is that people are afraid that they're going to hurt somebody else in mm-hmm. delivering the feedback. And um, and sometimes they're right in fearing that, in like that some people will be hurt by hearing what you have to say because you're either correcting something or raising a grievance. Um, those are the kind of typical triggers that cause people to feel uh, an emotional upset at the end. So I think as somebody who's delivering feedback, it's to know that if you feel emotionally strained around it, that's perfectly normal. Mm. Uh, the second a piece of advice is to prepare, is to prepare your feedback, is to really think deeply about the issue. And there's lots of things that you can do to review uh, what's going on in the situation. And also to try and get away from the fact that if you're delivering feedback, doesn't mean that you are completely right, that you have ownership on the truth, uh, because none of us have all of the truth. All of us have a piece of the truth. Mm. It's, it's true and partial at the same time. So when we remember that, all we can do is when we're offering feedback is to offering a partial truth to the other person yeah. that can help expand their notion of what's going on. Yeah. Maybe offer um, a perspective or this, yeah, is exactly. how, this is how I see things from my perspective or this is my perception of the situation. Yeah, that's right. Um, so yeah, doing the preparation beforehand. And what I mean by preparation is doing things like, okay, what is the actual issue? Um, digging down deep into that. What have I done to contribute to that? What have they done? How long has it been going on? What is the impact on me? What's the impact on others? If we do nothing, what's the consequence of that? Um, What are the triggers at play? So we talked about triggers earlier. So what are my triggers in this situation? What are their triggers? Uh, What is the pattern of behavior that might be affecting this? So um, are they, are they, in survival mode, has something prompted them into difficult behavior or something prompting me into difficult behavior. So when we look at all these possible, I'd, I'd like to think of um, leadership as a wilderness and there are various different maps you can use to navigate it. And when we're looking at giving feedback, there's a number of different maps that I use. I teach my clients uh, to apply to different situations to see which one best fits. You know, is this a drama triangle issue? That's Stephen Cartman's work, you know, victim, persecutor, rescuer. Is that what's going on here? Is that dynamic? Is it one of the neuroscience triggers that David Rock uh, came up with in his work? He's an Australian neuroscientist. So is there, is there something that's pushing them into survival mode? Is there something pushing you into survival mode? So when we have, we apply all these different maps, it gives us a greater scope of understanding of what could be going on. Um, and then the, probably the most important aspect of delivering feedback is doing intention hygiene. And what I mean by that is like, what do you really want to accomplish if, when you give this feedback? Are you, are you just, do you just want to have a go at someone? Are you, is it from vengeance? Is it because you're hurting? And if that's the case, stop. You kind of need to rise above that and work towards, well, what, what do I really want? Like, what's the bigger picture here? And I get people to do the five whys exercise. You know, it's like, I want to correct their behavior. Well, why is that important? Uh, because then they'll perform better at work. Well, why is that important? Uh, because then I'll have less headaches. Well, why is that important? Well, I'll be happier at work. And why is that important? Because I'll be a better boss. Well, why is that important? Yeah. Well, I'll get along better with them. And you, you kind of keep digging until mm. you get to, you can't go any deeper. Um, and essentially, usually what it boils down to is 
a lot of the intentions are I want I want us to have a better relationship. I want us to I want you to perform better at work, or um, I want us to be happy at work. Something like that, kind of like basic and primal. When you dig deeper, so you set the intention and you declare that at right up front in the conversation. My intention yeah. for this conversation is that we're both happy at work, um, or that you're performing to your best and you enjoy your work. Um, and then I use a simple recipe in terms of delivering the message. I use an acronym called FIAT. The F stands for fact. So once you state your intention statement, then you go into the hard part, which is like, bang, sharing the perspective. Facts, statement of fact, you describe what happened with non-emotive, non-judgmental terms. You know, Ifa, you, you did this thing. You showed up today and you hung a backdrop in your podcasting studio. <laughs> like statement that's of fact factual. like yeah <laughs> that's a fact. okay yeah 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 um impact is is what the i stands for in fiat so impact what was the impact on me what was the impact on others and this is the part that has the emotional overtone to it and so i would say like i'm just going to make this up because you know, let's say i was distressed by your backdrop it's not true but let's say but, <laughs> so fact ifa you hung a backdrop uh to your podcasting studio the impact on me was I felt really closed in and uh, intimidated by your backdrop. <laughs> now, that's the part, like, if I was delivering that to you, you go, oh, I, that was not my intention. Like, I'm imagining, like, if this was a real, <laughs> this is like the worst example ever. But anyway, we'll go with it. <laughs> um, if I'm delivering that, I'm sharing an emotional, emotionally charged statement and that's where the tension in the conversation rises. Yeah. And so the other person is receiving this and going, wow, I had a negative impact or a difficult impact on somebody. I may or may not have been aware of that. I may or may not have intended that. Yeah. So all of a sudden the stakes go high at that point. Yeah. And so what you need to do when you're delivering feedback is to crack that tension. Mm. And the way that you crack it is by asking a question. So that's the A in fiat. Ask. You know, um, and then I'd say, Eva, can you tell me why you've done this? Why did you hang the backdrop? What's the rationale behind it? So I immediately give you the football and opportunity to disclose and share and basically relieve the tension and the conversation at that point. And then what happens at that in that a asking part of the of the um, conversation is there's a backwards and forwards. There's active listening. There's paraphrasing. There's there's exploring each other's point of view. And that's the messy part. You know, it's like, really, it was that you, you, you have to be mm. curious at that point. You have to keep asking questions and yeah. clarifying and trying to get to the heart of the matter of what, what, why they did this thing, what their intention was. Uh, through that part of the conversation, it may get resolved in terms of, well, I just won't do that thing again, or uh, I could try something different, or hopefully together you come up with a solution. Sometimes it doesn't happen and you have to finish with telling them what you want instead. And that's the T in fear yeah. is tell. It's like, okay, um, well, what I'd prefer instead is next time in the podcast, if you could hang a pink curtain <laughs> instead of a <laughs> black one, <laughs> that would be really helpful. Yeah. Uh, something that seems less claustrophobic and intimidating as an example. <laughs> so that's, that's how I would deliver feedback. Um, yeah with somebody it's it's a conversational thing and it's awareness that the emotional charge will be there and giving an opportunity to release the energy in the in the hard part yeah and and it's it's sparked a memory in me now of learning something about it. it's it ties in with that impact piece you were talking about and you don't say things like and you did this it's more about the, like you say setting out the observation the facts of what happened and then saying and the impact on me was and it made me feel the, or sorry it not made me but as a result I felt this way as opposed to you made me feel like this you kind of separate the two things um yeah, yeah. from each other so like there's the facts of what happened and then like you say the impact and um uh and you put it on yourself and say that I felt this way or this was kind of my reaction it may not have been the intention but that was my um, reaction to what happened and you know that's especially really important those point. difficult conversations that's um I learned that as being called I statements you know um 
when you did this, I felt this. And yeah. so you have to use you language, like you can't just avoid it, but it, <laughs> you use it in describing something that you did, not something yeah. that you intended. Yeah. So you never, we never want to project into somebody else's brain what their intention was. Mm. Uh, we can describe the observable facts uh, because we don't know what's in somebody's, what I call their volcano. Like humans are like volcanoes. <laughs> there's the, the stuff that we see coming out of them, which is yeah. usually their behavior, their words. Yeah. And there's all this mess underneath mm. that is driving that. We don't know what the, what's happened yeah. in their world to create that. Yeah. So we can we just say, this is what I observed. This is what you did. And the impact is like, this is how I felt. And, and that's the I language. Yeah. I, I felt, I saw, I observed, I noticed. Um, as opposed to you, you made them feel you were distressed. And it's a really important distinction. Thank you for raising that. And well, presumably, you know, to kind of building on that point a little bit, the um, whatever our assumption. So if we make assumptions about what someone's intention was, that's more likely to re- to reflect on us and our perceptions than the other person, because they would they may have a completely different perception to that. Yeah, totally. So how many times have we made up stories about why someone did something to us? Yeah. You know, they must really hate me. They don't care about me. Um, they think I'm useless or whatever it is. And sometimes those stories are true, actually. And yet, um, some most often they're not. Yeah. Like often we assign explanations to somebody's intention that is just completely bogus. <laughs> <laughs> So I think it's worth, I think giving people the benefit of the doubt is always, I guess what I tell my leaders is always assume good intention. Yes. It's rare that you come across somebody in the workplace in particular that uh, deliberately wants to be a jerk. And um, they're rare and far and few between. Even the ones who are behaving like jerks, they likely don't intend to be. Mm. They're often reacting out of pain or misery or because they feel wronged and or hurt and harried like there's a whole bunch of reasons why people behave the way they do and often it's never often it's never it's rarely (laughs) it's rarely because they're deliberately intentionally wanting to sabotage the environment around them yeah yeah that it's coming from a place of hurt within themselves um we touched on as well this idea of self-reflection um, and I'd love to to dive into that a little bit. That's only something that I suppose I became aware of um, in the last number of years. So it's not something, but now that I see the power of it, I, I see how useful it could be in the workplace, even to take five or 10 minutes at the end of a work day and reflect on your working day, not even your kind of life at large, but more within the working day, what went well, what could I do better tomorrow and learning from that because I know myself, you know, when I put myself under an awful lot of pressure and then that might carry on till the following day. But if I can reflect and learn on what I should do differently to manage myself and my time better, um, then it it really, really helps me to be able to do that. Yeah. Uh, it's such a useful practice. I was interviewing somebody on my podcast, her name's Promise Philon. And she's this, she's a total gun IT um, maverick over in the United States. And uh, she, I asked her about this, you know, what's her self-awareness practice? And because she said that she was hungry for self-awareness. She was as passionate about accomplishing business as she was about self-awareness. I'm like, wow, okay, tell me, what are your practices? And she journals every morning in terms of what she's grateful for, what she intends for the day. And then what she does is throughout the day, if she goes from a meeting with like she's pitching an investment or whatever, she'll, after the meeting, she'll make a voice note about what worked, what didn't. And oh. at the end of the week, she reviews those voice notes. I'm like, oh my goodness, like that's a huge, that's like a lot of time <laughs> to do that. I said, tell me about that. And she goes, I don't want to look back and miss the granularity of what happened. What was the, the, the atomic aspect of my success? Because we forget, we forget details. And she's, she wants to capture like the little things that contributed to the big picture. Mm. And I'm like, that is actually a wonderful perspective on why doing this kind of reflection is important because she's right. I can look back on the last 10 years and pick out highlights of what were significant experiences. Can I remember 
what I did leading up to that. Like, mm-hmm. let's say it's a book launch. You know, what were the specific things that I did that made that book and that experience successful? Oh, I'll remember. No, you don't. Yeah, <laughs> Do yeah, yeah, yeah. I was like, <laughs> oh yeah, I remember. And then it'll come to you like a month later, like, oh, I forgot that part of why it was successful. Yeah. And so that that kind of daily practice and weekly rehearsal was one aspect. And then she had this monthly practice, which blew my mind. She goes, once a month, I take myself off to Starbucks and I spend six hours in Starbucks reflecting on the bigger picture. What are the bigger trends that I'm seeing in leadership and in business, et cetera. I'm like, a whole day like in Starbucks? Like, that's a little crazy. <laughs> and and yet I I thought that was really important. And it's her like her, it's her think tank day. Yeah. And I think and and leaders who are incredibly successful have really strong reflective practices. Hmm. There is, there was a Netflix special on Bill Gates, say, for example, he has a whole think week. He takes himself off for a week to a cabin with a big pile of books. He just reads and thinks. It's like, wow, if Bill yeah. Gates, who's got an, a few things on his, on the go can invest a week uh, on his own to do some big picture connections, hmm. then, um, maybe I could do something similar, maybe yeah. on a different scale, maybe yeah. working up to that scale. Uh, but um, it just shows the power and usefulness of it. And Promise also said that she she went and joined this Tony Robbins high flyers group, like she was invited to this thing. And she said, one of the things that she observed as being part of this group is that all the leaders, all these fantastically well-accomplished global leaders took copious notes on all the conversations they had with each other. They saw every experience as a learning opportunity. Mm-hmm. So they didn't have this, I know everything thing. It's yeah, like, yeah. there's always more to know. And so yeah. they were capturing great detail, everything they were learning. One of the things I've started doing as, as uh, similar to what you were talking about. So I, at the end of every day, I write down, I have a success journal. And what I record in there are milestone successes, like, um, you know, sold that many books or uh, landed this deal, as well as process successes, which what did I do today that's contributing to the big picture? And it might be something like wrote a newsletter article or called 10 people, things that don't necessarily return a reward immediately, but it's part of the contributing process, that granularity of the steps and success. So I have a success journal. And one of the other things I started doing actually since that conversation with promise <laughs> was to, and it's been sort of like, oh, I know I should do this, but now I'm like, I'm going to do this yeah. is I have a separate little book around um, delivery. So when I do customers, client service work, I take my book out and I write down what worked and what could have been better after each one so that I have a record of what I can do to improve things. And I have uh, two friends who've got this practice as well. So they, they, they have a different kind of, um, leadership business than I do. They, they teach the same thing over and over. One's a productivity expert. One's a uh, key performance indicator expert. And they teach the same thing, but they, every single time they teach it, they review what, what worked, what didn't they tweak things like, Oh, this could have been a better story, or this could have been a better case study, or this was a great analogy. This exercise worked or this one didn't. I'm like, wow, that dedication to just micro improvements Mm. is is so powerful and it's why one of the reasons why they're so successful in their work is because they're doing that and i'd like to think of leaders if they did that at the end of each day you know how did that conversation with frank go today what worked what didn't when did he pull away when did he lean in Hmm. what was it about the way that i ran that conversation or set it up that made it a success or not a success and what would i have done differently like these kind of reflection practices help us to grow um, because it's only in the little micro changes that we can create long-term sustainable change. I don't think we yeah. just wake up one day and suddenly radically wave our magical wand and poof, we're a different entity. It's, it's the micro changes that are, are the critical ones. Yeah. I think it's when you get to the end of a day and you know, something is irking you or you, you realize that you didn't do something very well, or you, you know that you could have done something better or you could have performed better in some way and allowing yourself that time to really reflect on, well, what could I have done differently? How could I have set myself up differently? What would I do differently if I was doing it again tomorrow? Um, And for me, like you were saying earlier about having a cup of tea, for me, thinking about it is one thing, but actually writing it down, 
almost takes it to the next level where you're getting it out there and and you're almost making this commitment to yourself that the next time that something like this happens so the next time I'm speaking with Frank I'll be more aware of what he's saying or I'll pick up on his cues um you know I'll hold back from saying something I'll be I'll listen more than I speak or whatever it is that you need to do to improve um but in writing it down I feel it, it kind of sinks in a little bit more for when you go to next do that process or you might even be able to pull out your journal again and be like okay what what was that thing so you, you're saying we don't you think you're going to remember all this stuff but you don't but if you have if you have a journal then be like okay so what happened the last time I had this conversation right what did I say I could do better okay here it is written down here um or something like that but Certainly when I worked in, in the corporate world, this it, we knew that we needed more time to think about stuff, but, but journaling definitely didn't even enter the vocabulary um, when I worked, you know, in, in my corporate roles. So it's, it's kind of allowing people that time. And the other thing that occurs to me as well is, you know, when they say, um, you know, spend 10 minutes meditating or spend 20 minutes meditating. And they're like, I don't have time to meditate. And it's like, oh, well, if you don't have time, then spend an hour doing it, you know, <laughs> yeah. because, you know, so if you don't, if you feel like you don't have time for a reflection, then that's probably <laughs> the, the most, that, that it's more likely that you really need to take the time to reflect. And just on a bid for meditation and productivity, um, the work that Stephen Kotler is doing at the Flow Research Collective on peak performance and particularly flow states, you know, when we're completely immersed yeah. in the moment and time yeah. drops away and our creativity boosts and our productivity boosts. He said there's three major contributing uh, habits, I guess, that allow us to get into flow more easily. Uh, one of them is meditation. One other one is exercise. And the third one is gratitude. And those sort of like, three big rocks of practices help set us up for being able to get into those peak experience, peak flow states uh, more readily. And so meditation, because it helps us, helps train our focus. Um, and that's, the, that's the critical aspect. And so this, I don't have time for meditation means that you have no time to develop focus and yeah. you don't actually want to be hyper creative. Yeah. And so there's different, I mean, there's different practices for meditation the one sitting down and closing your eyes doesn't work for everyone and yet there's other kind of meditation practices that can work walking meditations like counting meditations anything that can train focus mm. is really critical because focus drives flow so the more that we're able to focus on one particular thing allows us to put all of our mental, emotional, physical resources into problem solving that particular thing, which boosts productivity, which boosts creativity and so on. Yeah, the interesting yeah. one is gratitude. And I think that's a useful thing to put into a journal practice. And um, there are studies around this shows that when we're in gratitude, the emotional state of gratitude, it primes us for serotonin hmm. and um, sometimes oxytocin, which are feel-good biochemicals. So that feel-good state primes us to want more of that as well. And when we're in flow state, it's a, definitely a feel-good experience. And we crave more of it because it's just dumping a whole bunch of fantastic neurochemicals into our system, dopamine, serotonin, oxytocin at the end of it, and denied, I think that's how you pronounce it, norepinephrine, which is our curiosity biochemical and excitement biochemical. Adenide helps us make connections between patterns, which allows us creativity. All this is primed by uh, doing those three practices. Exercise because it helps purge our nervous system and helps create calm. So with focus, calm, and feeling good, we're in a better state to contribute more. So I don't have time to meditate. Wow, you don't have time not to really, if you want, <laughs> if you're serious about peak performance. Yeah, yeah. Probably um, one aspect that might be helpful for folks listening is if we are going to be better leaders, better colleagues, better friends, the attributes that we like to cultivate are the attributes of the elder. It's an archetype that I talk about in my latest book, People Stuff. And we don't have to be old to be an elder. We can, uh, we can aspire and practice the, um, the ability to be sensible and sensitive. So best of the heart, best of the mind coming together is the elder, what the elder encompasses. And we talked about one aspect of that, and that's humility. Um, the another aspect of cultivating our elder archetype is curiosity, being incredibly curious about 
ourselves, about other people and about the world around us. And that actually feeds into our humility. So if we're curious, it keeps us asking questions and open to perspective and to insight. And the last piece is, is to care. So when we care about ourselves, when we care about others, when we care about the planet, it helps us to be in service to others. And that kind of helps break the tension uh, or the, the shadow of, uh, of power, of, of hubris. So we'd stay out of hubris. If we can have humility, curiosity, and care, we will be in service to others in a much more powerful way. So that's what I would encourage people to embody if they can. Zoe, the question I ask everyone who comes on the podcast, what makes you happier at work? Ah, connecting with people. That's definitely the number one thing. So if I have too many days in a row where I'm doing thinking and reading and not connecting with people, I get a little bit <laughs> morose, <laughs> even though that's delicious activity for me too. It's, it's definitely when I'm connecting with others and learning about them and helping them, that makes me happier at work. And probably the second thing is just being able to step outside and be grateful for the life that I'm living. There's many times throughout my life that my health almost took me away. So I'm grateful every day that I can get up and do, do the work that I've created in my business and, and be joyful in that no matter what state or stage it's at. So those two things, being outside and being grateful and connecting with people. And if people want to find out more about you and what you do, what's the best way that they can reach you? Okay, they can come to Planet Zoe, which is uh, my website, zoerouth.com. That's Z-O-E-R-O-U-T-H.com. Like Routh is mouth with an R. Uh, that's probably the centerpiece. Or you can find me on LinkedIn. I hang out a lot there. Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. But probably you can... the go to the empire first, zoerouth.com, and then LinkedIn, the satellite. <laughs> so my latest book, it's called People Stuff Beyond Personality Problems, an advanced handbook for leadership. And it is, it's basically for leaders who have positions of authority in organizations. And it's about perspective in particular, how we see ourselves, how we see others and how we see the bigger picture. So it gives some thinking strategies to look at complex issues in an organization or in relationships. So some of those maps I talked about in People Dynamics are in that book. Uh, it gives us a pattern of five archetypes that we can lean on as leaders that we can embody to help us serve better. And we talk about the four devils of people stuff, which is the map that uh, showcases or reveals why people behave badly uh, in, at work and what we can do to address those particular behaviors. And then the bigger picture is how we see our picture in terms of who we're connected to and um, that we're all on this planet together. So that sense of inclusion and uh, care for the greater things is the, what we finish off with in the book. Um, it's a good fun read. <laughs> Thank you so much for your time today, Zoe. It was an absolute pleasure to, to have you on the show today. Oh, you're welcome. It's been a pleasure. My, uh, I've really enjoyed it. Thank you so much, Eva. That was Zoe Routh there speaking all things leadership and self-awareness. In terms of wrapping up the episode for today, I wanted to do a quick recap on what we spoke about. So we we. Sp- started by talking about the power paradox and how when people get power, sometimes it goes a little bit to their head and they sort of forget why they became a leader or how they got to be a leader in the first place. And they're not demonstrating empathy, compassion and service to other people. Sometimes this stems from a lack of self-awareness. And we also briefly spoke about delayed gratification We spoke about being aware of your triggers and not to be driven by your triggers, but rather approach yourself and your understanding of yourself with observation rather than with judgment. So it's more about doing an experiment and looking at the results rather than filtering things through your own perception of yourself. We spoke about focus and the importance of meditation and mindfulness when it comes to becoming more focused at work. 
We also spoke about the importance of feedback and how feedback should be treated as a gift. Not everyone sees the world in the same way. And I think this is one of the key things that you learn, especially when you become a new manager, that people see things differently and they do things differently. We spoke then about the importance of self-reflection, whether that is in the form of journaling and really understanding the effect that you have on others and what learnings you can take away from it. When it comes to delivering feedback, then preparation is one of the key areas and thinking really about what is the key issue, what role or what part did you play in the area that you need to give feedback on. It's about understanding triggers and noticing whether this is a pattern of behavior as well. And what would happen if we actually do nothing? It's really thinking about the intention hygiene. So think about what is your intention behind providing this feedback? Is it to get back at someone? Is it for some sort of vengeance? And if that's the case, then you just need to stop quite simply. The intention around giving feedback to someone normally falls into a couple of different areas. So it would be building better relationship, getting better performance from someone or creating a happier work environment. It really helps to declare the intention of the feedback at the start. The specific model that Zoe used in in the episode today was fiat. So starting with the fact, and that's about describing what happened in non-emotive and non-judgmental language. The impact. So what impact did it have on you? What impact did it have on others? And then ask, so what's the rationale? Get really curious and listen for answers and keep clarifying with the person. If you don't come to a specific resolution that you're looking for, it's about then telling them what exactly you want out of this situation. At the end, we spoke briefly about creating a success journal and really making those micro improvements to your day to day. I really liked the example that she shared from Promise, which is about making voice memos and then reflecting on those at the end of the week. So how can you improve a tiny, tiny bit at a time. And I really, really like that approach. As always, thank you so much for listening this far. I know there's a lot of other podcasts out there that you could be listening to. And I do really, really appreciate you listening to my podcast today. If you want to find out more about what I do, my new website is going to be launching in the next few weeks. You can get a sneak peek on happieratwork.ie. You can also find me on LinkedIn, Aoife O'Brien, that's A-O-I-F-E, O'Brien. You can follow the podcast and see behind the scenes on Instagram, happieratwork.ie. And you can also join the conversation, whether it's on LinkedIn or on Twitter, happieratworkhq. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Happier at Work podcast. I'm delighted to have you here. If you enjoyed this podcast, I'd love if you could rate or review the podcast or share it with a friend. You'll find me on the website happieratwork.ie.